<laughs> the Lord be with you. Yeah. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. So we're continuing through the Catechism, and we're in this section. Do you have a copy? Okay, good. We're all equipped. Uh, there are more copies in the back uh, if you're looking for one. And, uh, um, we're talking about the salvation section, um, which I'll just give you a little bit of background on this section. Um, it was, it was uh, when the Catechism was originally presented to the bishops, it was presented without this section on salvation. And uh, some of the bishops said, it needs to have this section on salvation. And, I said, and my response initially was, it has a section on salvation, shot through the whole thing. And that's what the, what the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments are all about. And uh, they said, no, 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 it needs to be front and center of what the gospel is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the features of uh, American Christianity that never ceases to amaze just how front and center the question of salvation is. Um, has almost magnified and overdeveloped everything else. Um, and I think that's both a fault and a, uh, and a good thing about catechism is that it puts that up front and center. It's kind of presenting with the realities. And uh, so I actually think this is a good thing. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a tradition in American uh, evangelicalism in particular that, that uh, it's shot through for everything um, um, of this kind of revivalism, right? It's this idea of um, you, you must come to the knowledge. Jesus Christ died for you. Right? And is that true? Absolutely. It's absolutely true, right? It's one of those things that we just absolutely have to hang on to. Um, what often gets missed in that is other parts of the gospel. Right? Like, how is the gospel good news for the poor? What about the kingdom of God? Isn't that good news? Yes, it's good news. Um, what about uh, what about the good news of the resurrection of the dead? That often gets lost as well. So I want you to hear that, that, that um, in presenting this, I'm not sort of saying, like, here it is, but high above all else. I'm saying, this is introductory material to sort of get us to some of these things. But, but it often, I'll just say this, that, that volume dial, or that, that uh, track on your, on, your, on your stereo just gets turned way up. Um, and, and it's not that it's wrong, it's that it's what isn't said in the midst of that. So I want you to hear that for me, that, that there are a lot of things that aren't said. But the bishops believe as a, as a matter of um, urgency in terms of proclamation of the gospel that this section be first. And uh, I can understand that now. And, uh, it's, it's quite good. The thing I want to warn you against is this. It's an essence. It's that uh, most people, if you ask them, sort of, sort of think they understand what this means. Right? It's I come to a knowledge of the gospel and therefore it's saved. And that's actually not Christian teaching. <laughs> uh, Christian teaching is far more full body than that. It's not just like under this knowledge or through this knowledge. That's actually kind of, kind of soft Gnosticism, really. Uh, it, it says that, that your knowledge will save you. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is that, that faith encompasses a lot of things. Right? It encompasses not only believing that Jesus Christ gave his life away, but it includes believing that he's the Son of God, believing that um, he has the Spirit of the world, believing that he has a church. That, you know, it's all those kinds of things, right? That, that you put your trust in. And in fact, this new catechism, uh, this new version has actually put a lot of those things up on the center, which is very good. So I want you to get that. Okay, so we've gotten enough of the misery, right? 
we spend enough time kind of wallowing in our sin and our, our incapacity to do anything about it, um, and, and we're ready for the gospel, yeah? I, I really want you to see this. We spent two weeks, basically, just kind of leaving, feeling like, this isn't good. Um, and now here we are. Question number six on page 24. How does God save you? God forgives my sins and reconciles me to himself through his son Jesus Christ, whom he has given to the world as an undeserved gift of love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Um, long before there was a football game, people holding up a sign saying John 3.16, uh, this, this verse has been repeated over and over again. One of the wonderful things about Anglican liturgy is it's repeated every Sunday. Um, one of the things that was almost entirely lost in the kind of prayer versions which we've experienced in the last, last 30, 40 years, 40 years um, is, is this repetition of comfortable words, which happens every single Sunday down here after the absolution, which is to say, um, we want people to memorize this. We want them to commit it to memory. One of the ways we, one of the easiest ways, ah, to sort of, uh, so it's one of the easiest ways to sort of calm people into memorizing scripture is to include it in the liturgy. Um, where, where was it? So you, you stick it in the liturgy, and, and it's there just to kind of be this constant reminder, so you, so you memorize it. Um, why is it important to remember this? I mean, I, listen, I kind, of, I kind of tend towards the thought that says God so condemned the world that he gave it up to sin and death, and that was it. Is, is that true? Yes, right? God actually does, consen- does condemn sin and, and does it through death. Um, but, but, but why? Because he loves it. Okay. So, so these things go together. It's hard for us as, as kind of modern people to think of, uh, of a being so twisted that, uh, that this being would, would contain all, both of those ideas within, him, within his character. Um, and yet this is exactly what God does. That's exactly who he is. All right. God forgives my sins. What does it mean to forgive a sin? What's that? Yeah, cancel a debt. Okay. Um, Steve Waters, who's a Bible translator in our parish, he's translated the Scriptures into, I think, at least two languages in the New Testament. Um, he says that the Tibetan uh, translation of the New Testament, because the, tra- the Tibetan understanding of forgiveness is this, to let a fish off the hook. So the, the, the word they use in the New Testament translation for forgiveness is letting a fish off the hook. It's, I should kill you and eat you, but what am I going to do? Gonna let you go, right? Um, what what the New Testament word for word is for forgiveness is dropping it. It's like you could let go of this. Um, I remember uh, several years, well, about twenty years ago now, I was a I was a ropes course instructor, like a what they used to call an experiment, an experiential therapist. Um, and we used to walk kids through this thing. And there, we I had this group of high school kids once, and and uh, we were in this time of sharing and. And we were talking about the kind of things that we hold on to that keep us from, from progressing through life. And she, she mentioned that um, her aunt had said, you know, if you get A's and B's, I will pay for your college. 
And then her aunt, through some unfortunate thing, uh, wound up bankrupt and unable to do this. And the truth is, she probably wasn't able to do it at all. She was just <laughs> being nice, I guess. <laughs> and and her, her niece had put all of her hopes in her college being paid for by her aunt. And when this didn't happen, and uh, she was a junior in high school, and she put all this effort into making A's and B's, and she had worked, her, worked herself hard to do this. Um, and she said, I even got all A's last year. Um, to be given this disappointing news was really hard. And she said, I just, I can't forgive her for it. It was, it was just, it was, it was unforgivable that she did this. And I remember a friend of mine said, um, you know, part of, part of healing is knowing that there are things that only you can control, and you can't actually control other people. And he said, what I want you to do, he, he tied a bandana around a cinder block. And she said, he said, this is your lack of forgiveness. And you get to carry it around for the rest of the day until you're ready to set it down. And that girl carried that cinder block around on a bandana for like three hours before it just hurt and her hand was in pain. And she was just like, Ugh, can I please set it down? And, and he said, do you forgive your aunt? <laughs> and finally, she, she kind of put two and two together and realized how painful this was to her. And, it, and the, the pain wasn't something that her aunt was inflicting. The pain was something she was inflicting upon herself. Um, and so this is how forgiveness works. And finally, she set it down, and she sat on it, with just tears streaming down her face um, because she had let go of it. Um, forgiveness is, it works this way. We say, you don't deserve to have this debt dropped against you. You don't. But, it, but the reality of it is that this, this it pains me. The pain is mine to bear. Um, and, and I'm going to let it go. Um, and I'm going to bear the pain in myself rather than trying to push it onto you. Does that make sense? Um, and I think that's a wonderful analogy for the gospel because this is exactly what happens in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm done pushing the pain of sin onto you. What am I going to do? I'm going to bear it myself. Um, I'm going to take it for myself. Um, and it's going to be painful to me. Um, he forgives my sins. And he reconciles. To reconcile means to be with again, to actively seek this state of being with again. Uh, re meaning again, con, with. Uh, this is how it works. Um, to be with him again. And so we must remember that we are not with God de facto in life. Um, how? Through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has given to the world as an undeserved gift of love. Um, the teaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is an important teaching, and uh, it's, it's certainly what he calls himself. We don't immediately understand what that means, um, mainly because we think that, uh, we, we tend to think as materialists that there's no such thing as nature. Um, we think of nature as kind of like, oh yeah, we go out into nature and we go camping in it. No, nature is actually a philosophical term uh, for, for how things were created, right, and what they are. What is, what is a thing in its nature? What is it in its essence? Um, I cannot, I cannot, as, a, as Lee Nelson, beget anything that doesn't share in my nature. Does that make sense? I mean, I can't, I can't beget apple because I'm not apple. So when we say in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we mean that he shares in his nature. He shares in his divine nature. That's just assumed, right? Like that's, that's just what that means. Um, and so part of early Christian theology in the, in the Fathers was working this out. What does this mean? And it means that, uh, that he is in very nature God. Um, 
and, he, and he's given to the world as an undeserved gift of love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why does God save you? Because he loves me, God saves me from sin and judgment so that I may love and serve him for his glory. Okay, God, because he loves me, he saves me from sin and judgment. Now, does this mean that we do not face judgment? Not at all. Does it mean we don't face sin? Not at all. Um, we're saved from it in that we face it. Um, so there's this kind of a very strange, and I, I think it's actually a rather pernicious idea that Christians will just not be judged. Um, that's not biblical Christianity at all. <laughs> biblical Christianity is you absolutely be judged. Everyone will be judged. The creeds are very clear about this, um, that, that uh, Jesus Christ will return again to judge both the living and the dead. We're going to say more about that as time goes on. Um, he saves me from sin and judgment. Why? So that I may do two things for one end. So that I may love him, right, and serve him. Now, those two things go together, don't they? Um, the New Testament uses both of these understandings of what is our duty to God. And the first is always to love him. To love God doesn't mean that we have, that we have a deep emotion and, and a sentiment for God. What does it mean? What's that? To obey him? Uh, that's actually more in the serving end, but love and obedience go together, I would say for sure. It means that we actually set aside self-interest and we, we look for God's interest. To love your neighbor means you set aside your interests, right? What, what's good for you, what helps you, what, what, is, what is ultimately um, good, good for your own ends, and you serve your neighbor's ends. Okay? So to love really does require this, that you set aside all of your own ends and, and that you seek out this. And that's what leads to this service. Um, so the service of God, and why? For his glory. Um, now, does God have an everlasting glory that is unchanged? Yes. Okay, let's just say that. God has an everlasting glory that is unchanged. But do we glorify God by serving him? Yes. Okay. Um, it's kind of a, well, let's just put it out there. It's a paradox. Like, how can he get more glory? He's got all of it, right? But, but what does glory mean, actually, at the end of the day? Does glory mean kind of sitting in, in sunshine all the time? So glory in the biblical sense actually means uh, uh, a kind of mastery in creation. It means that, uh, that, that things are as they should be. Now, that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, God has all glory, uh, but things are not right on earth, and, and we, we are brought and we're saved to love God and love, and, and love our neighbor and to serve God uh, for his glory. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Savior of the world. Fully divine, he took on our human nature, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now rules as Lord and King over all creation. Okay, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, meaning that there has never been a time when Christ was not. Okay. So uh, there's an ancient heresy called Arianism in which uh, they say there was a time when Christ was not. Um, 
It's kind of the old Aryan hymn, there once was a time when Christ was not, when Christ was not, when Christ was not. And then it's like, burn, 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 burn. Like, it's, 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 uh, it's to say, uh, this is how I remembered it in, in seminary. So I'll occasionally give you the songs that I memorized things with. Um, but, but this is a pernicious thing, right? It's not just sort of like, oh yeah, there are some people who think that Jesus Christ is not co-eternal with the Father. And, and Orthodox Christianity just rejects this completely. Jesus Christ is co-eternal with the Father, meaning there is never a time when he is not, there is never a time when he is not eternally begotten of the Father um, in his divine nature. Fully divine, don't you hear this? Fully divine, he took on our human nature such that how many natures are in Christ? Dos. (laughs) How do they they exist? I'm going to just sort of spoil everything for you. In a personal union between the two natures. Um, so that we say that Christ is uh, both fully God and fully man in one divine person. Okay? Um, now, that language is very technical, and it's very technical so that you don't miss the thread. Right? Because if you were to say something like this, well, Jesus, yes, he's fully divine. He's kind of like us, kind of has a nature like ours. It's special, though, and we just want to be clear that we say that. Okay? Is that a problem? It's a huge problem. Because if it's not our nature he takes on and something else, then how can he save us? And put more, put more accurately, what is the quality of that salvation? Athanasius, St. Athanasius, puts this very strongly in his work on the Incarnation. And the lovely thing about that is he, is he says, you know, God could have just decreed this forgiveness. He could have just said, I canceled the debt, here's the contract, all you got to do is sign on the bottom line and I'll forgive all of it. What's the quality of that salvation, though? Uh, uh, I mean, it just doesn't cover it, does it? What actually happens is that Jesus Christ takes on a full human nature, and he doesn't just kind of, listen, it's not just sort of specially created for him, right? That's not how it happens. Where does he get his human nature? From his mother. I mean, it's not just sort of, sort of like, it's not made in a test tube. I mean, he's not conceived through some sort of odd, you know, miracle. He, through the Holy Spirit, God takes flesh from the Virgin Mary, joins it to the nature of his eternal son, and binds them together. Get this, so that not even in death are they separated. From the moment of the incarnation, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. They do not, they're never abstracted. Um, and so one of the issues in Christian theology is how do we talk about that? Um, and we're going to say more about that as we get into the, into the creed section. I think it will be helpful to you. Um, what do you do after taking our human nature? Well, he was born, for sure. We don't mention that here. But he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. Um, Christians are always absolutely clear. He died bodily. Yeah? He didn't just sort of appear to die. It wasn't some sort of like uh, special effect. He died bodily. Was buried in the ground bodily. Rose from the dead bodily. Now, is that body different in certain respects? Well, certainly in certain qualities, but not by nature. It's a, it's a human body. Let's be clear about that. 
But what is it, what is it marked by? Immortality. It can never die again. So, uh, you know, certain rules are suspended, right, that, we are, that we're bound by because we are human beings that uh, are mortal, right? I mean, I can't just say, yeah, I think I'd like to go outside and just, <clears throat> I'm outside. I have to walk, I have to go through a door, right? That's how it works. The risen body of Christ, you see, <clears throat> he disappears, he reappears, right? That doesn't mean non-bodily. What does it mean? It means he has a glorified, immortal body that will never die again. Um, he's no longer bound in time and space like a mortal body is. Does that, does that help you to say that? I think there have been some, some quote-unquote theologians who said, oh, we see that he's not bodily raised from the dead because he can reappear and disappear, right? He can do all these, you know, he can, he can eat, but it doesn't look like he has to, you know. He, he sort of is mysterious and seems very spiritual, and, and isn't that what the New Testament says, that he's raised a spirit, that the, the body is raised spiritual? Okay, I'm just going to be abundantly clear here. What we mean by saying that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead in the body, immortal, after a spiritual manner, is not non-bodily. Are you a spiritual being? Yes. Does that mean you don't have a body? No. Um, so there it is, right? It's, it's just simply to say, when we say spiritual, we don't mean non-bodily, or we shouldn't mean non-bodily. Now, modern people say that because we have this fiercely held dichotomy between spirit and flesh, between uh, material objects and immaterial objects. And we're actually led to believe, because of materialism, that this is real and the immaterial isn't. You can't be a Christian and hold that. I'm sorry, I'm just going to spoil it for you. Like, Christian materialism is an idea held by certain weirdos, right? Like, I'll just be clear. Like, how the heck do you get there? And I'm just going to say, it's impossible to be a materialist and a Christian at the same time. Okay, why? Because the creed's rejected explicitly, okay? I didn't mean to be derogatory by calling them weirdos, but, but, but it is weird. It's just a really weird thing to hold. Okay, ascended into heaven... Meaning what? He gets on a rocket ship and goes, you know, up into outer space and sort of lives out past Jupiter somewhere, flying around in the clouds. No. He goes bodily to where God is in heaven. He goes to be joined to the right hand of the Father, um, where he rules and reigns. Um, it's a mysterious thing, to be sure, right? Um, part of the thing that should be said on every Ascension Day um, homily is something like this. It's, it's this paradoxical thing about the Ascension, that Jesus is both with us, like he says, I will be with you always to the close of the age, and then he ascends, and he's also what? Not with us. It's paradox. Okay, what's important about it? two things. He goes to the right hand of the Father, and in the Gospel of John, he says, I go to the Father, he keeps talking about this, like chapter 15 through 17, over and over and over again. Why? So that where I am, you may also be. Okay. Say that what's shown forth in the ascension is actually the quality of our salvation. Right? And this is important because it shows us that it's not just about having a debt canceled. It's not just about sort of being in right relation to God. It's about being with God. 
Um, the quality of our salvation is not just sort of like being forgiven so that you can float around on a cloud and play a harp and enjoy a, a nice life in a uh, golden suburb, gated community, where God doesn't mess with you too much. No, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's to actually eternally uh, enter into the mysteries of God more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Right? When... <laughs> If you read The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis, is this wonderful thing that said where they're, they're going into Aslan's country. And, and, and what do they say? Yeah, further up and further in. And you get the sense they're going to do this forever um, because they will never actually meet God in his essence, but they'll get so close. And they'll just get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. Not until, but they just get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. Um, because as the fathers say, you know, you can never meet God in his essence. Because you just, you, you'd cease being what you are. But, but they speak of it in this way because what actually happens in, in the fullness of salvation is you actually enter into the divine mysteries such that the, the dividing line between you and God starts to dissipate. It's called, it's called divination, glorification. Um, you become by grace what you are not by nature. So that's the quality of salvation. And that doesn't mean there's no longer separation between God and man. It simply means that that, that dividing line becomes almost like uh, um, porous. So the quality of our salvation is, is shown to us in this ascension, and now rules as Lord and King over all creation. Um, this, this means that whatever an, earthly, whatever an earthly ruler is, there's sort of this, I mean, let me say, we're, we're pretty close to an election, so I'm going to say a lot about, about politics in the coming weeks. I'm not going to tell you to vote for one person or another. I'm just going to say a lot about politics, okay? This is, this is, the, this is the hard thing about being a Christian in, in the political sphere. You have to kind of do two things at the same time. You have to say first that um, earthly rulers are there and they serve in that role by God's good pleasure and because God has appointed them. At the same time, you hold that their rule is somewhat illegitimate because of the reality of Jesus Christ as Lord and King over all creation. Do you see the paradox? It makes it really hard, right? So, like, a lot of Christians will speak about how they support this candidate or that. And I, I want to I just say, you got to be careful. And you got to be careful lest you throw your, your life behind that as an end in itself and not, not somehow say in your mind, if they are elected, it will be because God permitted it or, or willed it. And yet, there's still something illegitimate about that position. Do you see how, how hard that is? It's, kind of actually, it's actually kind of painful, right? Because you, you, can, you, can, you can have high hopes for them. You can, you can pray for them. You can, you, can, uh, you can honor them. But you have to believe that there's still a bit of a usurper in every earthly ruler ever. Someone who has, who has taken a power that's not theirs. 
Um, so I want you to kind of keep that in mind as you go to the polls, right? And sort of think like, this is a tough thing, right? I'm electing someone whose rule will be illegitimate in certain senses, right? Is it, you know, Christians have never taught it's immoral to vote, right? They've never taught that it's wrong to vote. They've never taught it's evil to vote. They've never taught that it's evil to participate in politics. I'm just going to make all that clear. Um, you actually have to discern in your own mind if it's good for you to do it. You have to discern in your heart whether it's good for you to do it. Um, many Christians have just withdrawn from politics altogether, um, and that, that may be something you think about. But it's to say, when you, when you think about political things, you must always have it in front of your mind. Jesus Christ is Lord and King over all creation. Okay. Um, for ancient Christians to say Jesus Christ is Lord means something very, very, very dangerous and treasonous. I mean, I've said this, in the, I, pardon me if I'm, boring, if I'm boring you, but, you know, in the ancient world, coins were cast with the word Caesar is Lord on them. So every time you went to pay, some, to pay for something, indeed, every day you were paid, right? A denarius is a day's wage. What's on the denarius? Caesar is Lord. You're reminded of this earthly power, and yet your Christian confession is what? Really simply, Jesus is Lord. So this is, I mean, to, to hold Christian believing in the midst of this world is actually always treasonous, no matter what the government happens to say about it, right? So, look, we live in a country where we have religious freedom, ostensibly, okay? We're supposed to. At least that's the ideal that we hold to, okay? At least we want to get there, right? We're pretty serious about it, right? The Supreme Court's doing a great job on this, by the way. Really great, fantastic job, okay? So despite what you might read, they're doing a great job on religious freedom. Not a great job on religious enforcement, right? But they're doing a great job on religious freedom, right? So, I mean, I think anybody who says, like, we're in big danger, they're not reading the briefings, right? They're not reading the, the, the rulings. However, however, it's not, it's not that we look to the state to say, you're treasonous. No, we just say, we're treasonous, that's what we are by nature, by professing Jesus Christ as Lord. You can't be anything else. Um, this is why I love what C.S. Lewis says about this, about, about the incarnation itself, is that the incarnation is the Savior of all dropping in behind enemy lines to foment a revolution and a rebellion against the powers that rule. Um, so I want you to hear that. That's the language of Christian believing. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord and King, that's what we mean. Um, it means that uh, all the kings of this world, all the, uh, all the powers of this world, all the rulers of this world have an authority that is, that is, is it God-given? Yes. Is it still illegitimate? Yes. Okay. Um, and so I want to say that as strongly as I can. Okay. Is there any other way of salvation? Go ahead. brevity. Yeah. I, you know, this is meant to be br a very brief. Now, we'll get to it later, right? In the creed, we get to it, but it's meant for brevity. Yeah. These are, these are meant to be just sort of like very simple. Is there any other way of salvation? No. The Apostle Peter said of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only one who can save me and reconcile me to God. Um, you know, I think we need to stop being so offended, right? So, like, I think we as Christians should show a way of just not being offended. Um, 
Because I think a lot of people take offense at this. They say, well, you know, you Christians claim to be so exclusive, and you claim to be so, you know, there's salvation in only one other way. I've sort of just taken a start to say, yeah, well, I'm sorry, that's just fact. Like, do a course in comparative religion and ask yourself, is there a salvation in anyone else that's of the quality or the depth as what's offered in, in, the Christian, te- in Christian teaching about Jesus Christ? Is there? Like what I just described about being in glory with God? Not even remotely close, right? Like, not even remotely close. I'll just lay them out. Like, Islam, best you can hope for is that God will not hate you for all eternity. He'll sort of tolerate you, maybe let you be with Him, but not really. Sort of like, they, they much more are tuned towards paradise in the sense of, um, paradise used to mean like a, a walled pleasure garden. And it's actually an Iranian idea that comes out of, out of the Persian, uh, I shouldn't say Iranian, it's a Persian idea. And it's actually kind of taken up into Scripture. What about Hinduism? The best you can hope for is to break out of this vicious cycle of death and reincarnation and become something really, truly great, like a god. But then you got a whole set of other problems, right? Like, people are going to annoy you. And you're going to have to play all these cosmic games, okay? Buddhism. The best you can hope for is to be relieved of the idea that you exist and, and get enlightenment. And enlightenment is not to, uh, to kind of come to an understanding of the truth. Enlightenment is actually really simple. It's just get it through your thick skull that you're not real, that this life is all just pain and suffering, and the more you put it out of your brain that all that is real, then you'll be happy, and you'll be enlightened, and won't that be great? Okay. I'm just telling you, what Peter says in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, is just a fact that there is salvation in no one else. Nothing else offers this level of even thinking about what salvation looks like. And I actually say this. Part of the reason that we have this kind of pluralistic problem, and really a relativistic problem, is that most Christians don't actually profess how great the salvation which we profess is. They're just sort of like, yeah, like harps, right? Isn't that cool? You know, floating in clouds. It's amazing, right? To which I say, boring. <laughs> it's just over. Like, who cares? I don't want that. I'm like, that sounds miserable. But, but, to be, but to be ever entering into the glory of God, which is an inexhaustible depth um, as a human being, wonderful. Just wonderful. Okay. So that's, that's the New Testament teaching on, on, on Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers and the uniqueness of it, right? Um, how should you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? As soon as I receive and believe the gospel, I should repent of my sins, put faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and prepare to be baptized. Now is the day of salvation. Um, I want you to get this. If you get nothing else out of these first couple of weeks, I want you to get this. In the Christian understanding, uh, to, to take hold of the gospel and to repent, and to be baptized are all three facets of the same thing. If there's a fault in American Christianity writ large, it's that we'd like to divide them up so that we can have clear categories around each one. So we can say, like, that's what this is, that's what this is, and that's what this is. I want you to 
put that out of your mind for a second and think about what I think I said a couple weeks ago, what the experience of someone uh, entering, into, entering into the church through baptism and by profession of the faith experienced. This was all intentional. You would profess the faith in the words of a creed, you would be baptized, and from there on out would be expected to live a life of repentance. Why? Because you now have that profession and you now have that power because the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, and God's grace is given to you. That, in short, is conversion, right? That's what it is. Um, It's not, here's the gospel, and then there's all this other stuff, (laughs) right? Because, Because, listen, in the Christian baptismal rites, all of these are contained, right? So, like, if you ever see a baptism here, one of the things that we ask people to do um, is you're going to face that direction and you're going to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Then you're going to turn and the celebrant's going to ask you, do you believe in God the Father? And you say, I do. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What are you doing? You're professing the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And then we ask for other, and then, and then you're baptized after that. Because all these go together. And they, they co-inhere, right? So, I'll, just, I'll put it this way. To speak of uh, Christian conversion and belief and faith in abstraction for bap- from baptism just doesn't do the New Testament ba- position on baptism justice. At all. Right, well, why? Because Peter on the day of Pentecost, when they say, they're cut to the heart, right? The hearers, they're cut to the heart. What do they say? They say, what shall we do? And what does he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he tells them that this, this promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children and all who are far off. Like, do you see what's going on here? It's just this great gift given, but there's all of this is going to happen all at once. It's just right like that. You see throughout the Acts of the Apostles that sometimes baptism is abstracted from coming to faith and sometimes coming to faith is abstracted from baptism. What do the apostles do when that happens? They regularize it. They normalize it. If you haven't been baptized, they baptize you, right? So all of this is there. When, when there are uh, disciples who've been baptized, but they never heard there was a Holy Spirit, what do they do? They lay hands on them that they receive the Holy Spirit, and they move on. All right, so all of this is going together. Um, and we're going to say more about that, okay? Uh, for some people, and I, you, may, you may not have any hang-ups whatsoever about this, um, you're kind of thinking, like, I know that Anglicans baptize babies, I'm pretty, I know it happens, like, I mean, but, you know, I, I really don't want to see it. Or maybe you're saying, like, I'm not sure I'm on board. I just want to say this to you. Our teaching on infant baptism is not a standalone teaching. It's actually part and parcel of what we teach about baptism, okay? And I'm just going to be bold and say, which is the New Testament's teaching on baptism, okay? Um, that's, my, that's my bold statement for the day. Um, is that we hold this New Testament teaching on baptism. I'm going to say more about why, but I just want to preview it for you that that's it, right? It has nothing to do with, like, we think that this is a good thing and we should just do it. It's because we, we believe what is professed in Scripture about baptism. Okay? All right. So let's move on. And, and it actually is not to say that baptism can be given apart from faith and believing and repentance. Because if you read the liturgy for baptizing a baby, does it say that? <laughs> not at all. In fact, when my kids were baptized, we baptized them into a life of faith and repentance. 
They, they were not meant to be abstracted. Okay. There it is. All right. What does it mean for you to repent? To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. I need God's help to make this change. Okay. This is so important. What is the power behind repentance? It says it right there. God's power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit active and working in us through grace to change us. This is so important that you get this. If you believe that the power for repentance lies right here, in my own ability, in my own understanding, how will repentance go for you? First of all, I'll say not well. Second of all, I'll say, not only will it not go well, uh, you're going to fail. And even if you have some success, it will be an exercise in self-aggrandizement and not repentance. You must look to God for this repentance. And how do you do it? Through a life of prayer. And this is why, in the catechism, we structure it. The apostles' teaching, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. It can't be Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer. We start with the faith. We go to prayer. We talk about prayer. Why? Because it's through the interior life of prayer that one is converted. Like, this is what we teach. We teach that, how do you become holy? By entering into the divine life. By sharing in the life of the Trinity. Not by, I'm going to get holy! No, it's got nothing to do with that, right? It's not some sort of exercise in superheroism or, uh, you know, trying to become a, a sumo wrestler or a, whatever it is. Like, no, it's got nothing to do with that. It is that you exercise this interior life and the interior life brings you to grace. And this is why we speak so much about the power of the sacraments. Okay. I'm mindful of time. Let's see if we can finish up the salvation section. Oh, there's no way. Okay, let's try to, let's try to move it through it. All right. What does it mean for you to have faith? To have faith means that I believe the gospel is the truth that Jesus died for my sins, rose from the dead, and rules over my life. Therefore, I entrust myself to him as my Savior, and I obey him as my Lord. I'm going to say this. Okay, this is, this is a good answer, but it's not the full answer. Um, it's a good answer in that it says, yes, I believe the gospel's truth. Yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he rules over my life. I entrust myself to him. I would say, I surrender myself to him. What's not really covered here is what faith actually is. And what I would say faith actually is, is it's, it's actually abandoning your life, abandoning your understandings, abandoning your self-conceived ideas of who you are to God in Christ. Um, one, one of my particular favorite writers just says that to, be, to have faith is to put your mind in the hands of God in order to be taught. So actually, faith and discipleship go together, and I would actually say faith and authority go together in a really wonderful way. Look at the, uh, the, the centurion in Capernaum and Jesus, right? He, his daughter is sick, and he wants his daughter to be healed. And what does he say to Jesus? 
He started talking to him, and he says, listen, listen, man, you can do this. Here's why. I'm a man under authority, and I have authority. I'm giving you the kind of pared-down version. I tell this one to go, and what does he do? He goes. I tell this one to do this, and what does he do? He does it. Anyone in the army, anyone in the military, there are two of you here, you know how this works, or how it's supposed to work, right? The authority structure is absolute. It serves everybody, if you follow it. Because what you do is you put your faith in your commanding officer, that he will command you to do what is right and what is good, and you're going to do it. And in fact, one of the things you wind up saying is, if my commanding officer instructs me to do something that is just, that's, that's wrong, what am I going to do? I'm going to do it anyway, with very few exceptions, right? Um, you know, if your commanding officer tells you to murder somebody, then you don't do it, right? But many have. What do you have to do? Well, he's, he's, this, this centurion, he's pointing out something really important. He's saying, listen, Jesus, like, if, if you command it, it's going to happen. And what does Jesus say about this? He's astonished at his faith. So he, what does he observe in his words? He observes authority. But what is Jesus astonished at? His faith. So one of the things I want you to see in this, in this course, in this catechesis, is that faith and authority actually work together. Um, we cannot accept, like, one of the things that, I think we were reading this with the Brazos Falls, right, last, uh, two weeks ago, right, about, about authority, Augustine says about authority. Augustine says about authority that authority is very useful. Well, why is it useful? Because, listen, you are limited. You can't know everything. You can't plunge the depths of human knowledge. You've barely got the time to read an entire set of encyclopedias. I actually read somewhere that if you tried to sit down and read all of Wikipedia, you'd never catch up because it expands faster than you can read, like by a huge margin. You, you, you do not have the capacity for all knowledge. What you do have the capacity for is to surrender yourself to authority and build upon that, right? Many of you are students. What are you doing as students? You're surrendering yourself to authority. You're saying, I'm going to put my mind in the hands of this professor or that to be taught. Some of you are professors, and I hope you recognize the gravity of this thing, right, that you've been given as a teacher, that, that people are putting themselves in your authority to learn. So I want you to get all that. It's like, that's really important, really key. Um, and it, it even means that, as Augustine puts it, you know, <laughs> there are times when you, you're not even sure if you can trust the authority. And Augustine basically says, yeah, it really doesn't matter. Like, go with it. And if it's good authority, you'll find yourself loving God and loving your neighbor. If it's not, you'll find yourself hating. You'll find yourself doing all these things. It won't work. Um, so that's just a thought there. How can you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ? With God's help, I can, I can acknowledge and turn from my sins, receive the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ, and embrace the new life He freely gives me. One way to do this is by sincerely praying in the way described in the Turning to Christ section above, page 20. Okay, so this we turn you to a bit of a prayer, right? This is meant to be kind of like a, uh, a tract in a lot of ways. And in fact, Crossway is publishing this gospel section as a tract. 
And it's probably, you know, the best gospel tract out there, but I'm conflicted about it because it's not everything, right? It's meant to be an introduction, all right? Um, but how do we, you know, how do, how do we do this? How do we turn to God in faith um, and repent? We ask for God's help. We acknowledge that we're sinners. Um, listen, I mean, everybody in the, everybody should know that you're a sinner. Like, if somebody came to me and said, I don't think I'm a sinner. I would say, have you been di- diagnosed with delusions of grandeur? I mean, have you come to the understanding that you might be a psychopath? But even a psychopath will say, oh, I'm a monster. I just don't have any moral sense of me at all. I know I am. Um, so to, to, to acknowledge this, to turn from our sins, and to embrace the new life that he gives us. Um, that is how we do it. You do it by God's power. How should you do, what should you do as a sign of your repentance and faith? After receiving instruction in the faith, I should be baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, thus joining his body, the church. If I have already been baptized, I should confess my sins, seek the guidance of the minister, affirm the promises made at my baptism, and take my place as a member of the church. So we have this happen a lot now. We have people who are baptized once and have fallen away. And, and what should they do? Well, they need to be in a part of confessing their sins, um, affirming the promises made at their baptism. So we actually have this like thing that we can do. Uh, and when the bishop comes on, on the 30th, you could do this if you wanted to, um, reaffirm the vows made for you at your baptism. Um, that can be done. Um, it's done in confirmation anyway. Um, but for those who have never been baptized, this is so important. It's so important that, that there be instruction, right? And I would even say, uh, you know, I teach catechesis a lot, okay? So in my normal life, I, I wind up teaching a lot of catechesis. And the question always comes up, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? He wasn't instructed prior to being baptized. And it's always, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? What about the Ethiopian eunuch? What about, I'm, listen, I grow tired of it, okay? But I try to be patient because I should be patient and I know I need to be more patient. And I pray that I can be more patient and I'm, I'm getting that in spades, okay? So hear me when I say that. The Ethiopian eunuch is a different kind of animal. We're not talking about general pagan. We're talking about a well-instructed Jew. Okay, that's who, the, that's who the Ethiopian eunuch is. He's a Jew. By the way, in the time of the New Testament, there were a million Jews, a million Sudanese and Nubian Jews living in just south of Egypt. Lots of Jews living in Alexandria, too. Um, and, and he was ripe for the gospel, right? He knew all of it. The thing he didn't know was that Jesus Christ was this Lamb of God. Okay? Now, Look at your average person floating around in this world. Like, we think we live in a Christian country until we start doing surveys, right? And then it's like, oh my God, people don't really know. They don't know anything. Well, so this is, what, this is the value of catechesis. It's got to happen. There's got to be some instruction. And this is what I say to you. If you're here and you're not baptized, awesome, right? You're in the right place uh, because this is a place where you can be instructed prior to baptism. Um, and, and it's like getting slingshotted into the Christian life, right? because you're getting all of this instruction in advance. I think one of the things that we have a big problem with in the church today is that we baptize, and then we figure people will get catechized. Well, that's true if you grow up in a deeply committed Christian family that's deeply committed to catechesis. It's not true if you're not, and that happens a lot, okay? Especially if we think, oh, well, that'll just sort of happen, right? Like, 
it's not a foregone conclusion. Okay, it shouldn't be for us. All right. What does God grant you in new life in Christ? God grants me reconciliation with Him, forgiveness of my sins, union with Him in Christ, adoption into His family, citizenship in His kingdom, new life in the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. Okay, this, this stuff right here, this is Jim Packer. He wrote this. I remember when he wrote it. He just spoke it. And he quoted all the scriptures from memory. Okay? It was awesome, right? So let's, let's just break it down. Reconciliation. We are with God again. We're no longer estranged. We're no longer strangers, aliens. Um, we, are, we are joint heirs with Christ. Okay? Forgiveness of my sins. The debt that we have held, which we cannot drop because we owe the debt, Right? You cannot just call your credit card company and say, hey guys, I'm just going to drop my debt. You have no power to do that. Who can do it? The one to whom the debt is owed. And what does God do in this forgiveness? You know, I'm just going to drop it. I'm going to let you off the hook. That's forgiveness. Union with Him in Christ. Union with Christ, let me say, is the most underappreciated doctrine of the Christian faith today. Union with Christ means that Christ, the, the, Paul calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. Adoption into his family. Okay. There's a, there's a movie I just love, The Royal Tenenbaums. Have you seen this? I love Wes Anderson movies. And there's a scene when this father introduces his daughter. This is Margot, my adopted daughter. And you just look at it like, really? It's, it just reveals the guy's character, which is lacking. That he would call his daughter his adopted daughter. Because what is adoption really? You get the family name. You're treated as if you were a natural-born child of the family. You inherit the inheritance. You live in the house. You're, you're, I mean, your parents are responsible for you, right, legally. Undoing an adoption is possible by law in this country. I will just tell you, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be very easy, actually. I'll put it that way. All right. Um, citizenship in his kingdom. You get issued a new passport with all the rights and privileges of it. That's citizenship in the kingdom. Um, new life in the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do in creation? In the beginning, what was the earth? Formless and void. And what happened? The Spirit hovered over the waters. And what did the Spirit do? The Spirit moves over the waters, and what happens? Life is brought forth from the midst of the waters. That's what happens in creation. So if the Holy Spirit is given to us, what happens? New life springs up. This is why the great spiritual authors, I mean, I'm going to just wrap this up right now. The great spiritual authors talk about the spiritual life as a garden. And your job is to direct the garden hose to the places that are most dry, to direct the Holy Spirit, invoke the Holy Spirit upon those parts of our garden that are most dry. If you were to look at your life as a garden and say, what's the part that's driest? How do you, how do you do, what do you do anything about that? You pray, Lord, send your Holy Spirit into this part of my life so that I can receive this fruit. Okay? Really cool deal. All right. And that's the new life, right? It's, it's not life you had before. It's new life. And the promise of eternal life. Finally, we get to that one. Okay? Do you see how the, how the gospel is not just eternal life with Christ? It's not just living in a cloud. It is the whole life of God given to you so that you can be perfected by His grace. Um, so that the old life is left behind. 
Um, so I'm just going to bring it on down, okay? Here's the real, the straight skinny. The straight skinny is that God is not content to simply forgive you of sins and let you, become, let you stay a miserable sinner. That does not give him glory. There is a gospel being preached in this very city that says it is God's pleasure to forgive you and then ignore it that you're a sinner. It is his glory to do so. That is garbage, complete garbage. It doesn't measure up to the New Testament. What is the New Testament standard? The New Testament standard, standard, if you read Ephesians, is the full measure of the stature of Christ. So it is full measure of the stature of Christ or bust. That's holiness, friends. And God is greatly glorified by the holiness of his saints. So the thing I want to leave you with is pursue holiness. Like set your mind on nothing but holiness. Set your mind on nothing but the holiness of Christ. Set your mind on nothing but repentance, nothing but prayer. Um, and, uh, well, I should say, that's the good life, right? Like all the ancient authors say, the good life is impossible without friends. And Christians come in and say, the good life is impossible without friendship with God. How do you become a friend of God? Well, he gives you the ability, Right? But he gives you the ability so that you can enter into that wonderful friendship and, 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 and do his will and love him. He gives you the power. So I'll leave you with that thought. It's, it's to say, to be friends of God. Um, so thanks be to God for that. And we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up the last few questions and then we'll move into the uh, creed section next week.